Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tales by Firelight. This is week four of the Emerald Company. Marion awoke with a start. There was a knock at the door. She'd fallen asleep in the copper tub, and the water had turned cold. Muriel poked her head in the door and apologized for interrupting, saying that two stones had had a breakthrough and needed to see her. She dressed in greens and golds and made her way to Two Stones Laboratory to see what he had figured out. On her walk, she thought fondly of her friend. His real name was Arthur Granville, and he had been a part of her life for the last 15 years. In fact, the whole reason he was even part of it at all was the happy accident that his former employer used to reside in the same lighthouse manor, but sold it to Hollick and Marion on a lark, and actually forgot to tell Two Stones, who was his resident mage. Instead of kicking him out, they employed him, and he just kind of naturally began to fit into the band of misfits that they were. As she approached, she could hear Two Stones arguing with someone. I know the danger, but I'm one of the few practitioners that can resist its corruption. That's reality. You and Ren have both seen it. I know my limits and have a healthy fear of it, like I should. But I will not back down just because it's dangerous, Two Stones was saying rather determinedly. Won't back down from what, Arthur? said Marion as she came into the lab. She knew he was not fond of that name and enjoyed stoking her friend's ire. He stared flatly at her as she entered. A woman in dark purple, almost black robes laughed. <laughs> Arthur, you can't hold that secret from me now either, said the stranger. She caught Marion off guard. Oh, I don't believe we've met, said Marion. I'm Marion Gray, head of the Emerald Company, and you are? The woman looked Marion up and down and grinned a predatory smile. My name is Yvette Yakota. I'm a friend of Arthur's, she said. More like pain in my ass, Two Stones murmured, and the whole room laughed. Marion took control after the bit of laughter. Miss Yakota, to what do we owe the pleasure of your company? Soup making, came Wizant's response before the others could answer. Two Stones ran his hand down his face and clarified the odd comment. <sighs> In a sense, yes, soup making. Less soup and more broth, but this entire metaphor is not helpful. Look, Marion, in trying to figure out the magic that made the paintings function, I was essentially trying to make soup with all the ingredients in different pots and hoping it would homogenize. Okay, so soup magic. Explain, Marion said sarcastically, sat on the edge of a lab table. Go back to Estricus. When Professor Valian explained the paintings to me, it was as if each painting, that's a poor descriptor if there ever was one, was from a different perspective. A tower, trees in a field, etc. And I thought that the stone eyes were the source of the perspective. But I've tried over and over again to recreate them, and everyone is a failure. And that's where I come in, said Yvette. In Arthur's frustration, he called on me for aid. I am, for lack of better words, an occult hunter. Most of my jobs are your run-of-the-mill two-bit necromancy. But two years ago, things got weird, even for me. 
I was contracted by this dwarven magistrate. He said that his daughter, Aronia, the first in line to be the next court bard for Malin Velas, the dwarven king, he said that Aronia had gone missing in the middle of the night. Now, I do my due diligence. There was no secret lover, no slighted lover, no enemies. The family's well-liked. And so, the case goes cold. We chalked it up to a runaway. Eight months go by, and I'm back in the Dwarven Kingdom on the tail of another cut-rate necromancer. We track this guy down, we raid his house, but he gives us the slip. However, as we're investigating the house, I find something odd. A painting of the missing girl's bedroom. That's too specific to be a coincidence in my book. So we go back to Aronia's place and search it, and sure as stink on a Goliath, I find one of these stone eyes that he's calling it in the girl's bedroom. We search the girl's room more thoroughly, and we find another painting, this one of an instrument vault in the palace. Okay. So, we do what we need to get access, and I find another one of these stone eyes in the instrument vault. And after that, everything goes cold, until a month ago. You see, we finally tracked the necromancer down and killed him, but we found something worse. The missing daughter and the royal vault manager, both tortured and killed. It's odd as the manner in which they were killed, but two stones could describe it better. Two stones cleared his throat. Yvette told me that when they discovered the vault manager and the missing daughter, they were left in magic circles. They had suffered multiple mortal wounds as well as deep lacerations and had crystals shoved into the center of their brains at right angles. And what do these details tell you about the magic of the paintings, my dearest Arthur? They tell me that I didn't know how the hell the soup got made. But now that I see it, I wish I hadn't. Given what I know now, it goes something like this. Someone is taken against their will, and they suffer the large lacerations, producing large amounts of blood. Blood enough to draw a suspension circle and the wards that make the painting have adverse effects when tampered with. The victim is placed in a circle, and with their own blood, they keep themselves alive. Now, I'm guessing a little bit, but I assume that after a certain amount of time, the circle does its job. And you wake, at least somewhat. My assumption is that you that when you regain consciousness... You're given a sedative, like valerian root. And you become susceptible to the dream. Hold on, Marion said. Back up. Two things, suspension circle and the dream. Right. The suspension circle. So a suspension circle is just like any other magic circle. Um, I draw one circle to ward magic away. I draw one circle to teleport. And a suspension circle lets me suspend, essentially, time. And so, these, the the dwarven daughter 
and the vault keeper. Mortally wounded, placed inside the suspension circle. And on a perpetual loop, they're kept alive. They're kept alive just enough to not die. Okay. Okay. Um, and what about the dream? Right, the dream. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming here, based on the glyphs that Yvette found on the crystals, that they're related to dreaming. You see, in a natural dream, we're not really in any danger. But in a dream forced on you, your body and your mind can be damaged irrevocably. It's after the forced dreaming that the violence actually happens, though. So you're in the circle, and you're in this suspended cycle. You've, you've had blood drawn and drained from you to create warding glyphs and put spells on these magical paintings that are not really paintings. And in this circle, your veins and your arteries are opened. It flows free, the blood flows freely. You can't heal, but you can't die. And then, probably without much care, the crystals with the dream glyphs essentially extending their power, I don't know how far, worldwide, as far as we know. Um, those are shoved into the center of your brain. And again, because you're held in the circle, you live and you die, but you don't do either, really. You're just kind of held. And the dreamer is forced to live this over and over and over again. My assumption, based on what I see, is that the mind in all of this drives that person to think of and project safety some place that is safe for them so refuge to somewhere to stop the madness from the perpetual hell it's my best guess it's messy and I would have to do a lot of experimentation on it and it wouldn't be pleasant to try to get it right Whatever way you slice it, it's evil, plain and simple. It's not just necromancy or blood magic. It's so much worse because it's all of it. Matilda's ship, the Moonlight Veil, bobbed gently as she sat at anchor in the harbor. Even this far out on the water, she could hear the noise of the city. Astrakis was a seething mass of people and noise. A Pyrian ship is approaching, a sailor yelled down at her. Half an hour later, she poured him, one of her only contemporaries, a glass of tea and sat back in her chair. I hear congratulations are in order on your new posting, a Pyrian said. Professor Valiant's classes are a post to be envied. Indeed they are. I'm thankful for the posting. It will give me ample opportunity to prove that Kryn's trust in me was not in vain. Another vessel approaches. Should I let them board? Shouted the deckhand. 
Words were exchanged, and they were soon joined by an elven man in half-moon glasses, and a wild-looking human who smelled like wet dog. Apollo, the elven male, introduced the wild-looking one as Kiartan, the head of a barbarian tribe called a Fane. All gathered, the four began to plot and plan their next moves, till the early hours of the morning when they departed, much in the same manner they arrived. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tales by Firelight. My name is Jordan, host and dungeon master of A Crack in the Plan. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It will not be the last of the Emerald Company. It's going to go on hiatus for a little while, while we jump back into Season 2. We'll release next week. And I'm also going to release uh, an unabridged version of the Emerald Company to this point. So all four parts will be in one. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.